Chapter 28 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Second Period of Scholasticism. Rosalind to Alexander of Hales, 1050-1200. The Problem of Universals. In the Isagogy of Porphyry, translated by Boethius, which until the 13th century was the common textbook of logic in the schools, the following passage occurs. Mox de generibus et speciebus, iliad quidem sive subsistant, sive in solis nudis intellectibus posita sint, sive subsistentia corporalia sint an incorporalia, et utram separata a sensibilibus an in sensibilibus posita et circa haec consistentia dicere re e usabu altissimum enim negotiatum est huius modi et maioris egens inquisitionis this passage which thrust the problem of universals on the philosophers of the middle ages proposes three questions one do the universals, generic and specific concepts, exist in the world of reality, or are they merely things of the mind, nuda intellecta? 2. If they do exist outside the mind, are they corporal or incorporal? 3. Do they exist in concrete sensible things or outside them? The dicere recusabo of Porphyry was a direct challenge to the schoolmen, Boethius, in one of his commentaries, had asserted the objective reality of universals, although in another commentary he had spoken as if he held that they were merely things of the mind. The early schoolmen were, therefore, thrown upon their own resources. Not having yet developed an adequate system of psychology, they were obliged to be content with the imperfect and what may be called a provisional solution of Porphyry's questions. Little by little, however, the problem of universals suggested questions of psychology and metaphysics, so that while it is incorrect to represent all scholastic philosophy as centering around the problem of universals, it is true that this was the problem that occasioned the growth from the primitive form of scholasticism to the scholasticism of the age of perfection, although there were, as we shall see, other factors which contributed to this development. The answers to Porphyry's questions are generally classed under three heads. Nominalism, conceptualism and realism. Nominalism maintains that there is no universality either of concept or of objective reality, the only universality being that of the name. Conceptualism concedes the universality of the idea but denies that there is a universality of things corresponding to the universality of the mental representation. Realism, in its exaggerated form, maintains that the universal, as such, exists outside the mind. In other words, that there are objective realities which, independently of our minds, possess universality. Realism, in its moderate form, known as Aristotelian or Thomistic realism, while it grants that there is in things an objective, potentially universal reality, 
contends that the formal aspect of universality is conferred by the mind, and that, consequently, the universal, in the full panoply of its universality, exists in the mind alone, having, however, a fundamentum in re. The formula, which came to be the recognised watchword of the nominalist and conceptualist, is universalia post rem. The formula of exaggerated realism is universalia ante rem. Moderate realism, in the spirit of true synthesis, maintained universalia ante rem, the types of things existing in the mind of God, universalia post rem, concepts existing in the human mind, and universalia in re, the potentially universal essences existing in things. In the first period of scholastic philosophy, Erigena and Fredigius advocated the exaggerated form of realism. The reason of this is not far to seek. The doctrine accorded with the pantheistic spirit of Erigena's philosophy. It offered the most obvious solution of certain dogmatic problems, such as that concerning the transmission of original sin, and its assumption of the perfect correspondence of mental representations with external things commended it to the uncritical spirit of an age of beginnings. It was for lack of a developed system of psychology that the age demanded a categorical answer to the question, do universals exist outside the mind? When, therefore, Eric and others deny the objective existence of universals, they are to be classified not as nominalists or conceptualists, but merely as anti-realists, for, though they endeavour to find a positive answer to the question, how do universals exist, their solution of the problem is to be considered in its negative rather than in its positive aspect. Nominalism and conceptualism did not appear until the second period of scholastic philosophy, and even then the treatment of the problem of universals was dialectical rather than psychological. It cannot be denied that some of the problems discussed by the later schoolmen were of a frivolous character. It is, however, a serious mistake to describe the problem of universals as a barren dispute, a controversy over over-refined subtleties. The denial of the universal means sensism, and leads incidentally to the denial of the abstractive power of the human mind. Moreover, the universal has its ethical as well as its psychological aspect, and the denial of the universal means ultimately the destruction of moral ideas and the subversion of the stability of moral principles. Consequently, the schoolmen are to be admired, not blamed, for attaching so much importance to the problem of universals. It is interesting to note that it was this problem that developed the scholastic method, brought out the element of rationalism latent in scholasticism, and led, as has been remarked, to the growth of scholastic psychology and metaphysics. Chapter 28. Predecessors of Rosalind Besides the anti-realists, Eric, Rummy, etc., there were, before the days of Rosalind, dialecticians who opposed the prevailing spirit of realism. Duboulet mentions a certain Ioannis qui iardem artum sophisticam vocalum esse disseruit. The authors of L'Histoire littéraire de la France speak of the same teacher as Ioannis Sophista. Houdin and Kolisch believe that Duboulet 
refers to Erigena. It is more probable that the Ioannis referred to is John the Deaf, otherwise called John the Physician. Hermann, abbot of Tournai, writing in the first half of the 12th century, says that in 1100, Rambert of Lille and many others taught dialectic nominalistically. It is impossible that the school of Rosselin could have grown to such dimensions within half a century of its birth. Consequently, Rosselin must have had predecessors in the teaching of nominalism. He was not the founder of the system, but rather its first great expounder and defender. End of chapter 28 Chapter 29 Rosselin Life. Rosselin of Compiègne was born either at Compiègne or, as is more probable, in Lower Brittany about the middle of the 11th century. He studied at Soissons and at Rheims. In 1098 he became canon of Compiègne and taught in that city, and later at Besançon and at Tours. Among his many disciples was Abelard. On account of the great number of those who flocked to hear him, and partly also on account of the development which he gave to Aristotle's dialectical doctrines, Rosselin was styled Novi Lysai Conditor. He died about 1100. Sources It appears that Rosselin did not commit his doctrines to writing, contenting himself with promulgating and defending them orally. There has come down to us, however, a letter addressed by him to Abelard, dealing chiefly with Rosselin's Trinitarian doctrine. Apart from this document, we have no sources of information except the statements of Anselm, Abelard, and John of Salisbury, who were Rosselin's opponents. Monographe Monsieur Piquet, Rosselin d'après la légende et d'après l'histoire, Paris, 1896. Doctrines. From the sources mentioned in the preceding paragraph, we derive the following points of doctrine. 1. Rosselin taught that universals were mere flatus vocis. Anselm says, Illi utique nostri temporis dialectici, immo dialectici hieretici, qui nonissi flatum vocis, putant universalis substantias. John of Salisbury refers the same opinion to Rosselin by name. Alias ergo, consistit in vocibus, licet haec opinio cum rucellio su omnio iam evanuerit. From these passages we infer that Rosselin was a nominalist, although the expression flatus vocis is obviously the phrase used by his opponents, rather than by Rosselin himself to describe his doctrine. Consistently with his nominalistic doctrines that the genus and the species have no substantial unity, that the union of individuals in the genus or in the species is a mere fabrication of language, or at most the work of thought. Rosselin maintained that the distinction of the whole is also the result of mere mental analysis. Thus Abelard declares, Fuit autum memini magistri nostri Rossellini tam insana sentia ut nullam rem partibus constari velit, sed sicut solis vocibus species, ita et partes 
describe about. And elsewhere, after describing his former teacher as pseudo-dialecticus et pseudo-christianus, he argues that when the Gospel tells us that Christ ate part of a fish, Rosslan would be compelled to maintain that Christ ate part of a word. 3. Rosslan did not hesitate to apply his nominalism to the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity. The one nature in three divine persons must, he argued, be universal. Now the universal has no real existence. Therefore, he concluded, the oneness of the divine nature is not real. Tritheism. That Rosselin held this doctrine is evident from the references of St. Anselm, from Abelard's epistle to the Bishop of Paris, and from Rosselin's letter to Abelard. 4. It appears from the testimony of St. Anselm that Rosselin either taught or was suspected of teaching the tenets of sensism. In De Fide Trinitatis, chapter 2, Anselm is evidently speaking of Rosselin's school when he says, In eorum quipae animabus ratio, quae et princeps et judex omnium debet esse, quae sunt in homine, sic est in imaginationibus corporalibus obvulta, ut ex eison non potset evolvere nec ab ipsis, Ea quae ipsa sola et pura contemplari debet veliat discernere. In the fifth chapter of the same treatise, allusion is made to the danger of passing from sensistic empiricism to rationalism. Nolentes credare quod non intelligunt credentes derident. Condemnation of Rosselin. Scholastic philosophy contained from the very outset an element of rationalism, which Cardinal Gonzales described as un rationalissimo sui generis. The scholastic movement was the outcome of an intellectual renaissance of Christian civilization, and hence the danger arose of claiming for reason too much freedom in the domain of theological inquiry. The peril which scholasticism had to fear was twofold, the abuse of reason on the part of the rationalist and the undue restriction of reason on the part of the mystic. Fulbert of Chartres died 1029, Othlo of Regensburg died 1083, and St. Peter Damian 998-1073 had already sounded the note of alarm and had condemned the abuse of dialectic. Berengar of Tours, 999-1088, had brought discredit on the scholastic movement by his heterodox views on the questions of transubstantiation, and his condemnation in 1050 by four different councils resulted in a more or less widespread suspicion of all philosophers and of philosophy itself. Under the influence of Longfranc, 1005-1089, Abbot of Beck, and afterwards Archbishop of Canterbury, there began what may be described as a reaction against the use of dialectic. The effect of Rosselin's Trinitarian error was similar to that of Berengar's heresy. At the Council of Soissons, held in 1092, Rosselin was obliged 
to retract his heretical teachings concerning the Trinity, but he continued, apparently, to teach his nominalistic dialectic. Again, in 1094, he was cited before the Council of Rheims, and again he retracted Abjuravit. Afterwards, however, if St. Anselm is correct, Rosselin asserted that he retracted Quia a Populo Interfici Timebat. Picavet makes no mention of the Second Council, maintains that the Council of Soissons never condemned Rosselin, that in fact it could not condemn him because he repudiated the doctrines attributed to him by John, a monk of the Abbey of Beck. Nevertheless, Rosselin was virtually condemned by public opinion, and although after his brief sojourn in England he was restored to the dignity of canon and was even allowed to teach, he gave occasion to Anselm and others to look with suspicion on the use of dialectic argumentation and on any attempt at opposing the realism which was the traditional view, the Antica Doctrina, as Abelard calls it. Historical Position Rosselin is not to be dismissed with the remark that he was a dangerous heretic. His heretical doctrines are indeed to be deplored, both because of the errors which they contain and because of the momentary discredit which they brought on the scholastic movement. But it must be remembered that Rosselin remained faithful to his Catholic convictions, and by the strictness of his conformity to Christian ideals of conduct, earned the right of criticising his contemporaries. In this respect, he is to be contrasted with his pupil, Abelard, who was a rationalist, devoid of all reverence for dogma and for traditional morality. Rosselin was an independent thinker who carried freedom of thought to the verge of rationalism. He represents an important phase of the scholastic movement, the beginning of the age of dialectic madness through which the movement had to pass before reaching the age of constructive activity. End of chapter 29